You're listening to Midtown Conversations. My name is Danielle DeVoe, and this week we feature a panel discussion and talk uh, from October 6th at the SDG Idea Factory Midtown Radio in partnership with the Music and Film Office at the City of Kitchener. Brought in author Shane Shapiro to talk about his new book, This Must Be the Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better. And we also got together a panel of local experts and, and sort of people who are participating in supporting the music industry. That is Betty Ann Keller, Paul Kalbfleisch, and Amit Mehta. So thank you for listening this week, and I think you're going to really enjoy this great conversation about music ecosystems and how we can support the creative economy with, with music. My name is Danielle DeVoe. I am one of the co-founders uh, of Midtown Radio, which is a not-for-profit community organization with a mandate to support local music and art. We showcase the vibrant and diverse cultural scenes in the region. We document, document, validate, and amplify local music, art, and conversations. We celebrate local talent, and we empower and uplift local musicians and community voices. I'm also a faculty member at, at the University of Waterloo in the Department of English Language and Literature. And so with that kind of academic position comes an interest in research. And particularly, I study cultural scenes through the mapping of things like cultural venues, cultural spaces, cultural events. And so I see in my work firsthand the value of supporting cultural work, of supporting infrastructure, uh, and of supporting kind of cultural experiences. And of course, um, everyone in this room probably agrees that music is fundamental to that kind of that support and that vibrancy in our daily lives. So I'm really excited um, to start having this conversation today and keep having this conversation um, as we continue to kind of think about ways that we can better support art and culture and music in, in our communities. So thank you for being here and being a part of that conversation. Shane Shapiro uh, is one of the world's leading music and cultural policy thinkers. He is the founder and chairman of, of Consultancy Sound Diplomacy, and, and the founder and director of the Global Nonprofit Center for Music Ecosystems. Shane has pioneered the work of music cities and music ecosystem policy, where music is written into how cities and places plan and invest in their future. And he is, of course, also the author of the book, This Must Be the Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better. Now, of course, Shane has very conveniently published this book at a time that is very useful for our community. So thank you, Shane, for your excellent timing. Um, it's appreciated. Um, and uh, please join me in welcoming Shane. Choosing me over Oktoberfest. I have, I've been to a few Oktoberfests and there are very few things I would choose over that. So um, th thank you so much for having me. Uh, it, it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to be in Kitchener. I was remarking, this is the first time in Canada I've ever been anywhere that knows what the SDGs are. So most North Americans, not just Canadians, have no idea about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And in Europe and in other parts of the world where I work, it's a big deal. So that just shows to me how progressive um, Kitchener is, whether you realize it or not. This is, you know, this is, this is unique, all right? So, said, my name is Shane. I grew up in Toronto. I went to university in Hamilton, and then I moved to Europe, and I still live in Europe. And I've been living there nearly 20 years, and I still sound like this. I don't know why. Um, and I kind of want to start like with a bit of a, you know, with a bit of an analogy. So, 
first off, you know, how many people listen to music today? Okay, I, th I think every single person in the room has listened to music today. Okay. When you were listening to that song or, or, or whatever you were listening to, were you, were you thinking about how that music was made? Very few of you. Or you were just enjoying the song. A couple of you I know are like in the industry and stuff. A couple of you were probably just enjoying the song, right? Or thinking about the process of how it got to you. Like how, you know, the song sits in a data center somewhere and how it got onto Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon or any other so I, one of the things about music and its ubiquity is we unintentionally take it for granted every single day, right? I liken it to clean water. So I give this analogy a lot. I gave it yesterday. So I apologize to my mother who's here who heard me say this yesterday. We all, I'm sure we all drank a glass of water today, right? And when we're drinking a glass of water, we tend not to think about everything that went into that moment happening because for clean water to get from the sink into our glass or into a bottle that we can open and drink, a huge amount of infrastructure and process has to happen for that moment to happen. The water has to get to where it needs to go. It has to be cleaned. It has to be filtered. It has to be distributed. It has, we have to have workers that understand how the water industry works and so on. The sink had to be manufactured. Loads and loads of things have to happen as forms of critical infrastructure that ensure that clean water can come from the tap and come into our glass. Because clean water is only important when you don't have it. I think the exact same thing happened to each of one of us, or most of us, when we were listening to that song today. We weren't thinking about everything that had to happen for that moment to happen. Music is not a natural resource. Music doesn't just come out of the ether. Music has to be created and has to be understood and has to be developed. And for that to happen, there's all sorts of jobs and skills and processes that need to be in place all the time for that song to come out of Spotify or Apple Music or whatever when you press play. Obviously, it had to be recorded. It had to be distributed. It had to be manufactured in some way, whether turned into metadata or, or put onto a record or... God forbid a CD, if anyone still uses those. And because of music's ubiquity, and because I liken it to the same way that we think about clean water, we tend to appreciate and enjoy and experience music, but we all tend to underestimate and underappreciate what is required for that moment to continue, and for that moment to be safeguarded, and for that moment to be protected. It's very similar. Remember that you know when we talk about music policy, and I'm going to get to a little bit about that, obviously, with the book in a second. We tend really to focus on live music because live music is something that we can see and you can't see a song. And we sometimes, we sometimes forget about the entire infrastructure, which I call the music ecosystem that is required to facilitate those moments to happen. And then when you uncover it, when you kind of pick apart the supply chain or you pick apart the ecosystem, you discover so many jobs and skills and trades that have to be developed for music to be developed. And when music is then successful in a community, when a live music venue is thriving, or there's a well-known artist who's recorded something that has done well from the community, we all celebrate that infrastructure succeeding. But most of the communities that we live in and I don't know that much about Kitchener. I'm still learning. Thank you, Bob, for all the notes. Um, but most of the communities are not investing in music and not understanding music 
in the same way that we invest in other forms of critical infrastructure. Yet, music is our universal language. It's the language that we all learn to speak first. We learn it in the womb. And I always say it's something that we may not need to live, but we would all struggle to live without. So about 10 years ago, I founded a company called Sound Diplomacy. In, I lived in London at the time. Most people haven't heard of us because we're really nerdy and behind the scenes and there's no reason to have heard of us. But we, you know, I always like in my job to try to explain why music matters to non-music people, right? And why, because when music matters more to the entire community, then we can uncover how it can be invested into. And music tends to be the recipient of decisions that are made, but it has nothing to do with. So I'm kind of obsessed almost more with cities than I am obsessed with music. I am obsessed with music, I promise. But I'm more obsessed with kind of why things are the way they are in communities. Why is that building that tall? Why is this intersection that way? Why is there no parking over there? Why is, you know, why is the public transit where it is? And so on. And when I'm walking in communities, and I've traveled a lot around the world, I'm constantly just looking up and looking around, just curious and wondering, well, what, you know, because every single decision that was made in a community was made by somebody at some point for some reason. Every single thing is intentional. Every single thing is deliberate. It may not be, the, the, what happens to it may not be intentional, but that initial decision may be intentional. And music tends to be the recipient of a lot of those decisions, but music never has a seat at the table. Why is this apartment building built next to an existing music venue, for example? And the apartment building may not be properly soundproofed. So people want to move into a vibrant area and then complain after 11 p.m. Or that's one reason. Or why is it really, really hard to get in and out of a festival site, for example, sometimes that there's tons of traffic? Because, because these are not so much music issues, but these are issues of housing, of transport, and of infrastructure. So sound diplomacy right now, we work with cities and governments all over the world not just on music, but music and cultural policy and strategy. And I thought, what if I had a seat at the table? What if Kitchener was setting its 15-year development plan? Most cities have 15, 20-year strategic plans. I'm guessing yours are aligned with the SDGs. Some cities do that. Um, what, what would I ask for? What exactly would music ask for if it had a voice to say, okay, well, what do we want Kitchener to be in the future? Where do we want to focus on development? Where do we want to focus our entertainment, our commercial, our residential? Where, what communities do we want to really prioritize um, because they may have been left out in the past and so on? That's what this is. So over the last 10 years, this is the work that I have been doing. And I felt that if I had a seat at the table, I wanted to try to explain what I would ask for and what I would want. And all of this started with... Um, a job that I hounded people to get. So I was the music advisor to the mayor of London in the UK for three and a half years. And it all started because a venue that I loved and that had a real personal connection to me closed down. It's now the Luminaire Apartments. And at the time, a lot of music venues were closing in London for all sorts of reasons. One of the main reasons had, again, absolutely nothing to do with music. It was a planning issue. So the government in the UK and planning in the UK is centralized. 
So the national government sets the main plan and then it's implemented locally. So the government in the UK is understandably obsessed with building homes because we have chronically underbuilt homes for 50 years. And they changed the law in 2015 and it's called the permitted development right. And essentially what it meant was in order to try to spur house building, they allowed you to change the use of an existing building from retail or commercial or office to housing without planning permission. The idea was more homes everywhere. What ended up happening, I'm sure you realize, was not great. A whole bunch of pubs, for example, started converting the upstairs offices into homes and people moved on top of pubs and then realized that the ceiling of pubs is not very well insulated. A lot of homes were built into old convenience stores and like, you know, ground floor commercial premises next to existing bars and restaurants. And because there was no law, no structure, no understanding to protect, this wasn't just music, protect all forms of cultural infrastructure, then you started to close. The Luminaire was one that was, um, that unfortunately closed because of a redevelopment project next door. So the mayor of London at the time, Boris Johnson, he actually commissioned a task force called the Live Music Task Force of music venues and uh, a few other uh, professionals to understand what was going on. And he actually quite liked live music and was reasonably proactive about this. That started a three and a half, four year relationship with the mayor of London as a consultant, where I started to realize that all the solutions to these challenges, whether they're solutions to how to support music venues more, and I know that's an issue here in Kitchener, to how to develop, how to develop talent and support grassroots talent, to how to invest in music education, to how to really understand the role that music plays in our communities, all the solutions were not music solutions. They were planning solutions, healthcare solutions, education, all things that I knew nothing about, absolutely nothing about. And I learned very quickly that if I was going to make any impact in this role, that I had to learn very quickly how planning works and how we budget and understand health and social care and how education filters factors into local authority, local community budgets, and so on. But I did. And we were very successful. So we were able to pass it. Now it's in the, now it's UK law, but we were able to pass a law called the agent of change principle in the UK, which means that anyone who is building next to a music venue has to soundproof the apartments next door. Same as if you're building a music venue next to a block of flats, you have to soundproof the venue. And I always say, it's always great to have friends in other sectors because the successful moving this forward, we got help from the pig farming association because people were moving next to farms and complaining about the smell. It's the same thing. Why do you have pigs? <laughs> Music makes noise. Pigs smell. Understand where you're living. And we were able to make that UK law. It's the only country in the world where it is now national law. It still is full of problems and holes and can be litigated, but it's better than nothing. And I started to realize that more and more, if we, could, if we could make music a solution to other people's problems, if we could think of music more as a nail in search of many hammers rather than a hammer in search of a nail, and where a solution to music's problem is not just music, where music can be a solution to bigger problems like the SDGs, 
A couple of years ago, I wrote a guide to music in the SDGs with 11 UN agencies. It's been downloaded, I think, 100,000 times. It's now the guide for the United Nations and how to engage with the sustainable development goals. Some of them were really hard, by the way, like the water one. That's quite hard to link to music. <laughs> um, but we did. And we, we started to, you know, with sound diplomacy and some of the other things that I've done, more and more that I started to see music as a solution to another problem. How do we fight houselessness? How do we, how do we build on economic growth? How do we make places simply better and fairer and more equitable? That music may not be the solution because it usually isn't the solution. The usually solution is, is, do I want to listen to music? Then the solution is music. But more often than not, it is part of the solution. And again, if we have a seat at the table, if we have a voice, if we have a greater understanding of how music can factor in to how we think about the development of our communities, how we invest in who we invest in and what we invest in. And I realized that if we had a bit kind of of a guide or of a toolkit, I wouldn't say this is a toolkit. This is more stories that, that I have experienced over, over the last 10 years. But there is one chapter in here, which I call the blueprint because my publisher wanted me to call it the blueprint. And it's everything that I have learned on how music can be inter, interspersed, interacted into other sectors. But the most important thing, and the thing that I, I'm hoping that you can take away from this as the city of Kitchener, not I mean you guys as counselors, but I mean the wider city of Kitchener, but I'm looking at you anyways, you know. First is if you want to take music seriously, you have to take music seriously. That means that it has to be treated the same as anything else. That means you need to build the data and evidence base around it. So we can start to make evidence-based policymaking rather than policy-based evidence-making. So by building a data and evidence base, we can understand the deficiencies in the community more. And it's not based on opinions and based on experience because music is the most intensely personal thing that we have. It's part of all of us. How, how I, everything about me, how I act in the past, how I dressed, even what I ate, who I hung out with, that was all based on music for me. And I'm sure it's similar for many of you. That is not the way to make policy. And I write, I write about this in the book that music tends to often be clouded because we're making decisions based on our understanding of music. And when I say the word music, every single one of you is thinking about it differently. The only way to get around that is by building an equitable, completely agnostic data and evidence base around what you have, pretty basic stuff, infrastructure, artists, education services, um, planning and licensing law and regulation, building. And I know that there are some things that the city does not have jurisdiction over here, that the province does. How it all fits together, how much is it worth economically? Do you know how much your music economy is worth? Do you know how many jobs are in your music economy here compared to how many jobs are in construction or medicine or engineering? I, I do in all the cities we work in because we do that. Or what are those jobs? Where are the opportunities to invest in those types of jobs, to invest in those types of skills, especially in a high-tech sector where if Kitchener is attracting high-tech workers, Music is always the canary in the coal mine when it comes to technological change. We're always the first sector to get screwed over. We are, and then adapt to being screwed over. And again, and if we're looking down the face of artificial intelligence, 
if we're looking at how AI and how technology is going to change the way we operate, the types of jobs that we have, again, music is not the solution, but it's a part of a solution. So instead of just thinking of music as entertainment, we need to think of it as infrastructure. Instead of simply thinking of music as the thing that we do after work, we also have to think of it as work. And if we do that, then music can start to be deliberately and intentionally incorporated into bigger decisions. It can deliberately and intentionally incorporated into how we can literally, and I mean that using the definition of the word, and figuratively make Kitchener better. But in order to do that, it first starts with mind shift, changing one's mindset to recognize that music is something that we have to stop taking for granted. Because if no more music was ever made from today, just imagine, today, blanket stop, all studios close, there's a virus or something, God forbid, and there's no more music ever made, we would still have music. We would still have everything that was made today and into the past. 120,000 songs get uploaded every single day to the DSPs, the digital service providers, Spotify's Apple Music and so on. 120,000 songs. Just think about that for a minute. About two thirds of them are actually made by human beings. One third is AI generated. Think of the amount of music that is being made right now. Yet the fact that music is such a ubiquitous, deep, emotional, human part of all our existence, yet it's struggling in all our communities. Yet it's something that we have to argue to care about. It's something that we have to treat as special rather than just treat as everything else. So 10 years of doing this, I've worked in about 130 cities and 35 countries. I've probably been to 60 odd countries doing this kind of stuff, talking about music. We always joke that more or less everybody has the same unique problems. And it starts by recognizing the value of music. It starts by seeing it as something that requires an evidence base, as something that requires proper planning, proper policy, proper thought. I just want this to be the beginning of the conversation. I'm hoping that if Kitchener does choose to think seriously about music, because it's an incredible opportunity. You can, you can attract more and retain more. You can compete with your neighbors and you have a lot of neighbors. You can leverage your evening and nighttime economy and manage it so it can be safe and it can be diverse. And you can really incorporate music more into the sales pitch of why Kitchener is special, right? But it requires that deliberate and intentional structure. So on that note, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming. I wanted to thank the city of Kitchener and Midtown Radio, obviously, for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We've organized a little panel just so that we can get some um, kind of additional local thinking around the issues that Shane uh, raises. Um, and so our panelists uh, include Betty Ann Keller, who I would put money on every single person in this room knowing, a woman who needs no introduction, but nonetheless, Betty Ann is well known throughout the region as a leader in the arts and culture community, as uh, both as a longtime music promoter and as a municipal employee at the city of Waterloo, and that's when I moved to this community. She was the culture manager at Waterloo. Um, 
Betty Ann also produced the 2022 documentary that you've all seen, uh, Rock This Town, that profiles the region's rich history as an important touring stop on the International Music Network. And she is, uh, continues to be a vocal advocate uh, for the importance of art and culture in our communities. Paul Kalbflesch is the co-author of The Joy Experiment, starting a new conversation on city building, which supports the idea of building infrastructure for the human spirit in our cities. Paul is also an accomplished artist and designer of public uh, spaces. In previous iterations of his career, Paul was VP of Global Brand Strategy for RIM, where he developed uh, cultural marketing programs with U2 and the Black Eyed Peas. He also spent time as a songwriter in Nashville and won a Billboard magazine songwriting competition, which I did not know before I was working on his bio. I knew everything up until then, and I only just learned that today. Um, Amit Mehta, also someone that you probably uh, needs no introduction. He's the founder and director of Good Company Productions, which is, of course, an artist-centric production company. He um, is leading the charge in a lot of music production in, in our community and working with um, uh, like so many amazing artists. He's also um, touring with Jaguar Sun. He just came off a, a US tour and is leaving again on another tour in between producing um, all of the great music we see in our community. And I guaranteed if you were out and about downtown Kitchener this summer, you saw, and you saw live music, um, the probability is that Amit was the person behind that, that his team was, was, or, you know, was the innovative group that's, that's putting on music in, 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 in new places and in new ways in the city. So thank you so much panelists for being here. So, I mean, something that, um, appeals to me about the book, and this is because Shane and I are both, both cultural policy nerds, is this idea, like the first chapter is like, well, for something to exist, it has to have a policy. And if you don't have a policy, then it just won't exist. And you're not, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure. And I, I, that, that kind of approach really appealed to me. And there were a couple of things from the book that I thought they kind of cut deep when I was thinking about the region. And so, um, you know, one thing that Shane says in the book, blindly emulating Nashville and Austin leaves cities vulnerable to celebrating the value of music without recognizing the need to understand, build and support its infrastructure, the infrastructure required to sustain it. Um, and then this one, uh, timely, given our current uh, sort of music traumas, what usually happens when places don't have a policy for music is a hodgepodge of art subsidies for festivals and orchestras. So we're in this kind of, we're in the hodgepodge. We don't, we don't have a plan. We don't have a policy. It's all kind of unclear. And I think, um, you know, when I was reading especially about Austin, um, I really felt like that was a cautionary tale. Austin has some real problems. You know, they have a large music office. It funds music. They map venues. They conduct research. They know the actual data. They know that their average income of their musicians is $10,000 a year. Uh, they know that a majority of their musicians don't actually live off of music. They have other jobs. They know when, a ven when venues are in a sort of retreat and closing down. They have, they have the stats on when venues are open, when they're disappearing. And that, you know, so they're armed with a lot of information. Um, during the pandemic, they had money to fund venues directly. You know, there's all these things that it, you know, we, I think in theory, we would like to think that we could have that or do that. But, you know, Austin also isn't necessarily thriving. Um, the local scene is really pushed out and overshadowed by being on the sort of international touring circuit. And it's hard, you're a young up and coming musician. Maybe that's not the place for you. And we have a lot of young up and coming musicians in this community. So Shane, you know, are the, how would you think about, you know, the cautionary tales and, and the sort of, you know, where, where you get started with policy and we can't not just emulating 
what some other place is doing. Austin does a lot of things right. You know, it is one of the fastest growing cities in America. It's doubled its size in 15 years. So with that comes all sorts of issues, obviously. Um, but I think it, it's hard to state what Kitchener should or should not do without the evidence base to back back it up. The reason, I know the, the trauma that you're speaking of, I, I know that. Um, and I think that's probably a symptom of a greater cause is what I think. It's something that has unfortunately happened because a lot of other things didn't happen. And a music policy is a process. So like if if city council found money tomorrow to build a music policy, and, and, and I know there, already are, there are some resources here, you know, Bob being in post is a resource. A lot of cities don't have that, don't have a music officer. Um, Guelph doesn't have one, really, just for example. Comparatively, London does, yes, Corey. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but, um, so I think that the, I think it's, it's really important first before diagnosing anything, you have to, you, you know, you have to do the MRI for luck. And, and I think that, that a music policy is a process like anything else. I liken it to the same thing that we, it's the same thing as taking out the garbage every week. We don't have a parade because we took the garbage out every week because it has to come out next week and the week after. A music policy is exactly that. Once you invest in establishing a process, then you just have a process. There's no end game here. It's just another thing. And it's going to have its ebbs and flows and ups and downs. But it's hard to say that Kitchener should do X or Y because you really lack a thorough evidence base. I, I think though, but then taking some positives, certainly the city punches well above its weight in terms of attracting and retaining you know, uh, talented people. Um, there's a lot of universities here. I know in Waterloo and Kitchener, um, there's a big high tech scene. So there potentially could be some exploration into, um, into how music is treated as a business in terms of how the local economic development community invests in and understands what a business is. Because often economic development doesn't exist in people's minds unless there's a shovel and a ribbon cutting at the end. And I wonder how many of your elected and unelected officials have any understanding of how intellectual property works and how to leverage and invest in music rights and how to create an environment to build a rights and, and intellectual property-based economy. Because you're clearly doing it in other sectors if you're investing in other high-tech industries that are protected by copyright or patents. So I, I think there's, there's more ways to go about it and, and maybe playing to your strengths and saying, well, we're good at this. So how does music apply can make this better, can help address other solutions? Um, it doesn't mean that the trauma is going to stop tomorrow, but it means that there's at least a plan to, to, to address, assuage, and, and position it so that it improves in the future. Do you, do you mind if I sabotage your process and raise my hand? Go ahead. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Okay. I was, I was going to put Ahmed on the spot so he can, he'll thank you later. Um, I, uh, I think the problem with the symphony actually presents as an opportunity because um, Danielle and I have been talking for months about the value of cultural mapping, which was 
um, something that I was focusing on when I was at the Creative City Network of Canada. It was the flavor of the month at that time. Um, I don't care what we call it, but I think what would be useful to do quickly would be to do an audit of the value of the symphony orchestra uh, at, at every level. You know, the, the economic impact, the personal uh, financial crisis, the, um, I don't know, I'm making this up, but there's this instant thing we can do that would get everybody's attention, I think, in terms of the, uh, the, re the value, the, the price of the loss, the price of the loss, I think that's what I'm looking for, is to um, get everybody's attention on an audit of the orchestra. And what I would hope is that that would take us collectively to an audit for the whole music picture in our community. Um, there's all these secrets, you know, the, uh, the, the back door behind the restaurant on Queen Street, Darlis Cafe, I think there's this little club. Amit probably knows about sure. that. Yeah, yeah, which um, is part of the story, but nobody knows except a certain slice of the demographic, right? The audit will give us a picture of what we stand to lose or what we have now or measure it as an asset and choose the right language so that we get an appetite. The other thing I just want to say since I have the floor is I'd like us to talk about uh, Kitchener-Waterloo-Cambridge instead of Kitchener because it is a much bigger picture than Kitchener. I know Kitchener's hosting this, but... Um, the reality is that artists live in all three communities, and there's some amazing stuff happening in Cambridge right now that could be useful for the big picture. So let's talk about Kitchener-Waterloo Cambridge today. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think it's, you know, this is an important uh, aspect, and this sometimes the, the problem with policy, you know, art and culture doesn't stop at the border. I mean, it's I'm, I have friends who live directly on the border between Kitchener-Waterloo. They're just both places at the same time and you know and it's and it's kind of a uh, for anyone who comes from outside of the community when you find out how entrenched the idea that Kitchener and Waterloo are separate it, you're kind of always amazed you're like oh I stepped across the line and my taxes went up but you know but other than that what do you what do you see when you cross the line and but you know but and 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 that presents real challenges for planning the hodgepodge of arts funding is in part because you have to apply to a bunch of different municipalities for your arts funding, um, and plus the region. And so there's kind of all these complications. There's loads of solutions to that. That's, that combined authorities exist in many parts of the world where you, you can assign different um, uh, cer certain sorry sectors can be responsible both at a combined authority level and a local authority level. Culture can be one of them. That exists in lots of parts of the world. Yeah, and and I think also with the the sort of evidence, something that I find interesting is that you know despite the fact that we have kind of a lack of of clear data, sort of um, systematically acquired data, um, people were able to observe where there were gaps or challenges and and sort of implement solutions. So um, um, if I can throw it back to Amit, you know when you started producing music the way that you produce music. What did you perceive in the community? What, what were the gaps and the challenges that you saw? And you're like, well, I have a solution. 
to that. I can, I can fill that gap. And Amit also is a uh, recovering tech worker. So he, he, he play, he's playing both sides. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's twofold. So there's a, I mean, a well-known challenge in Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge is a lack of a specific scale of venue, right? Um, that is amplified by how music is consumed as, as the population of these cities grow. So if you think about what KWC used to look like 40 years ago compared to now, you had a much more homogenous demographic, which typically meant people were listening to more similar kinds of music, which in turn meant that it was easier for a touring band or a specific artist to pick this out as a market and say, I'm going to stop there on tour, uh, which in turn means it's easier to justify having a venue, right? Because you can sustain it not just off of local artists and local talent, you can also bring in larger scale touring artists, you can sell 500 tickets, and the business model makes sense. As we've grown, our population has diversified, which means people listen to different types of music. And um, the way that music is therefore created is also a little bit more niche. So when it came to hosting shows in town, there were two things that we looked at. One was the type of music that we're going to be promoting has to be a little bit different in order to appeal to not just the audience that, that we're trying to attract, but also to appeal to the musician as a, as a method of performing. Um, and then the second part was we have to do it in spaces that are going to work as a venue, uh, even though we don't actually have venues. So we've, we've done shows in lots of different places. Um, so hair salons, grocery shops, museums, um, car dealerships, you name it, we've probably done a show there. Uh, and, and the reason is just like we don't have another place to do it. I'm kind of okay with that because it makes the experience that much better. But the second part of that is that when you come to one of our shows, it's always a mixed genre bill. So um, you come in and you might see a hip hop artist next to a gospel artist, or you might see jazz um, next to rock and roll. Like you, you never really know, but that's kind of how it has to be promoted. And I think people have to be a little more open to understanding that that is why we're not seeing, oh, like, you know, how come Kitchener doesn't have X, Y, and Z massive artists coming anymore? Well, it's not that they don't want to stop. There's radius clauses and there's all this other shit that happens behind the scenes, which we have to negotiate out of, but it's because the audience has changed, right? So we have to, we have to change how we promote that as well um, and, and recognize what that means for the folks that are here to listen to music, right? They want to hear something a little bit different. Maybe that means a smaller setting. So it's still happening. It's just happening in more diversified little pockets, right? Yeah, and I think um, we have another, Paul, you've been involved in the Gaslight District, and that's a pretty interesting example of, of ways that, um, I mean, in that case, it wasn't Cambridge that did it. It was a developer, a private, it was a private sector who sort of intervened and created a, a, a public-ish space in which art and culture and music could happen. Um, you know, how, what have you seen as you've been watching that unfold in terms of, you know, a brand new space where music is happening and can happen? Well, um, it is a public space. I don't know that we set forth to say we're going to make it a music space. We wanted to make it a space that was designed, uh, A, that there were no barriers of entry from a price perspective. You could come and hang out for nothing, if that's what you wanted to do. Um, it's, it's on private property, but what we're trying to do is to try and make a space that could be conceived of as everyone's backyard. 
Everyone can go there. Everyone can hang out. We have interactive public art that is really designed to get you to play together, uh, to play with strangers who you normally wouldn't have anything to do with because they don't align with your um, your algorithm online. And son of a son of a gun, if you can't start laughing together, and 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 maybe that's the start of creating a true sense of community where that sort of has vanished over the years. But what we are also finding is um, it's a new experience for people, and people are kind of not sure, is, can, can I really do these things? And can we, to, to get together and just sort of start randomly playing together um, is a little bit new to everybody. And so we're finding we have to experiment with the public, and the public has to experiment with what we're doing, and then we have to experiment with what the public is doing with what we're doing. And um, you know, hence why one of the words in the book was the joy experiments, because it really is experimental. But there's definitely a desire for people to come together. And that gets heightened with music. And I think people, you, know, you were talking about the diversity. I think that's is is an asset, um, especially if I've gone in to hear one type of band and then there's another type of band. But I really kind of don't want to leave the environment, so I hang out and then I, well, that, that was a little bit interesting, and 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 it starts to pull the community together. And I think music has that. Uh, that ability in a unique fashion. And I know we've just spent 10 minutes talking about the quantitative data uh, around it. And that, that puts you in the pecking order of what a city will desire as, as important. You might not like where you end up in the pecking order. There might, you might be, okay, you're great, you're in third place, but we're only gonna fund two things, so, so you're out. But you did a great job of, of putting yourself into that category. But music, I think, has a whole lot more to offer than that, that can sort of elevate it beyond just where you fit into the pecking order. And so it's sort of a rambling answer, but. No, it's good, and, I, and, I, and this, this kind of leads to something that I was thinking about a lot while I was reading Shane's book. So Shane and I are very similar in many ways. Uh, we have sort of the same academic background, but, but I didn't start out thinking about music. I did my PhD on comedy. Um, and I've thought a lot about, um, you know, I'm the board chair of the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery. I'm interested in visual art, other types of performance art. Um, uh, and, I, and I also am interested in music. And so, you know, when I hear ecosystem, I think about cultural ecosystem and the way that, that the entire cultural ecosystem really needs to be kept track of. Um, and especially if we think about in our community, you know, if the registry theater programs a bunch of music, does that mean that people in theater don't have space to perform dramatic work. You know, are they being pushed out? If the symphony shuts down, Greenlight Arts is all of a sudden locked out of their venue and unemployed because a theater company was dependent on that space in the times when the symphony wasn't using it. And so we have these, all of these venues that can work for a bunch of different cultural sectors, which is great. That's the kind of diversity we need, but if one sort of has extra weight, it can be the boat anchor or it can take over. And, you know, and so I think about that, you know, on the other hand, I think to Shane's point, music has specific types of policy problems related to 
alcohol and noise and things that other cultural sectors don't. And so I wonder, Shane, if you can talk a bit about, you know, is there something to be said for thinking about a music e ecosystem specifically rather than a larger cultural ecosystem? Yeah, well, I find a lot of cities that put out cultural policies kind of, they're not specific enough to any individual culture. So they, they, they talk about how great something is, but there aren't nuanced policy positions that can um, support those, those industries. I, I write about music because it's what I know. Uh, I don't know anything about dance or theater or comedy. I like them. I don't really know anything about the ecosystem, but I think they should be treated as um, the same as music. Like, uh, I, I find sometimes cultural policy is an excuse not to do anything. So it's, you know, where a music policy, um, you can get more into the weeds of some of the stickiest issues, usually around alcohol, liquor, and environmental health and health and safety, which have a particular impact um, uh, on music in the nighttime economy than they would on other art forms and, and cultural art forms. But I've, I've been criticized a lot of well, why music versus anything else. I'm like, Let's, I work in the music industry. <laughs> that, that's why I'm not, if, they, if someone puts out like, you know, this must be the funny place about comedy, then I'm in, you know, I think it's, it, it, it's, but it is true. And I go back to the point of music gets governed by things that has nothing to do with alcohol and liquor is the biggest issue. So it can be very difficult. You know, it's very, very difficult to tie to, to simply make money out of live music. If you're not, if you don't have alcohol built into the business plan, it's just very, very difficult. Uh, all ages shows are, um, are great cultural benefit, but they're very tough economically. So that's why I think we, you know, it's not to treat music better or more special than anything else, but I believe that it requires its own independent individual analysis, but that's not to say that other sectors don't either. Okay. We are, we are going to rapidly overstay our welcome, but the mayor's here. So I'll just say the mayor said we could stay longer. He, he said, stay, he says, he said, stay for longer. Um, so does anyone, uh, from the audience have a question? Oh, we got, we got hands up. Oh, Ian, Ian Graham, you're gonna have to stand up though. The cord's not long enough, but, and I assume you're going to ask a difficult question. <laughs> the cord is not long enough. So my name is Ian. I run small dog studio recording studio here. I have a degree in pipe work and actually music composition, and I'm also an educator at college and university. Thank you very much, Bob Egan, who got me involved with that. I notice in teaching, and funny enough today, my sound uh, design for animation and sound design for film yesterday was music, was the topic today. And I asked the students of, say, 25, 30, how many of you play an instrument? And I'm lucky to get one person to put up their hand. So I find it frustrating to see that our education, music is more and more coming out. But one last thing I wanted to bring up, and I wanted to see your opinion on this. I asked my students, is a musician just a musician? We're not. I said, we are brand ambassadors. We are marketers. We are business people. Da-da-da-da-da, right? Oh, I all know that. That means McDonald's. Always got time for Tim Hortons. We always know that. We are more. We are also psychologists. We are counselors, right? We go to concerts because it gets us away from our day-to-day -day life and all the problems that we have. We are counselors. We are healthcare workers. My question is, 
from we can keep going. I can say we're electricians as well because man, we're good with soldering irons. Um, good with soldering irons. Yeah. Can we help with the city uh, and end cities to help to understand that we are more than just a musician? That we need to. I miss the '90s. You know, thinking <laughs> I haven't watched your documentary yet, but I, I miss the '90s because live music was such a thing where everybody came together. And I'm wondering if we're missing on that. Well, I agree with you, obviously. Um, you know, there are many people who go into music and then their parents tell you to get a real job. I, I think that the, it comes back to what I said, I, you know, I, I'm, I actually, I may have said this during my talk and I've, I stole it from a musician, um, a friend of mine. He's, he's in an amazing band called Gomez, a British band. They won the Mercury Prize, their Polaris. And he said that music is the closest thing to magic that we're ever going to have. So most people have no idea how magic works or if it does or whether you believe in it or not, right? And it's that thing of of when a musician is on stage um, or or on our phones that we are just marveling in the end result, right? We are marveling in the product, not the process. So we forget that musicians are all sorts of other things. And I think the purpose of uh, of a city, and again, I don't mean this as the city government specifically. I mean a city in its totality or a region investing in music, and that's not just money; that's time and that's heart. Investing in music uncovers the you know the the the, mul uh, the multiple roles that musicians play um, because without that, then we just end up mainly experiencing the end result. And we end up going to the gig and going, oh, they're great. And we don't realize, yeah, that they're performing a service for our mental health. I always think, and I, I wrote about this, is, you know, in, in the most macabre way, COVID was the best case study for why music matters. And it surprises me. And, and, and globally, this kind of stuff is growing. More cities are doing this. Um, the people who are engaged internationally, I know, Corey from London, you know lots of cities. More people are doing this kind of stuff. A lot of people aren't doing it well, but more people are doing it. And I think that, I, but I think that still we aren't realizing what hit us in the face during COVID and the opportunity that music can have, um, you know, to address all our collective trauma and improve our community. So yeah, musicians are constantly un misunderstood and misrepresented and, but it's um, often not, it's not intentional. It's just the way it's been. So we have to change that and, and pursue a different path. Well, and I, I, you know, the ecosystem model, you know, it's not just about musicians and, and um, we had a good laugh with Bob Egan because on, on the cover of Shane's book, radio station is right at the top. And then right below that is music office. And then there's a bunch of other stuff, recording studios kind of buried deep down in the image, but they're all in there. And that it's that, a, that wasn't the intention of there wasn't there's not <laughs> there's not a there's not like a vertical hierarchy of you know, it was just the designer just put them in. All right. Do we have we have time for maybe one more question from the audience? Does anyone have some? Okay, Sam Nabby is gonna ask a question. Um, hi, my name's Sam Nabby. I'm a hip hop artist and um, involved in and also documenting the hip hop history of this region in, in various projects. But my question is about uh, the fact that music, especially certain genres like hip hop, are very youth oriented. Um, young people need opportunities to get on a stage, to, to have that first experience, 
in front of people to hone their craft that might not might not be a paid gig. They they might have to work their way up to that. It might be a, a music video competition. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to hear how, uh, or maybe the question is, do we need different approaches to get that person from their bedroom into actually performing music and then a different set of, of priorities for this person wants to make it their career. Um, you know, how, how do, how does the city nurture that first step for someone to make music for more than just them and their friends? There are quite a few places that we have worked, including in the UK where hip hop in some ways is in effect criminalized. And we live in a world of deep seated systemic racism that impacts hip hop probably worse than any other sector because it is historically a representation of black culture. Um, it's also wholly misunderstood by people who don't listen to it. So, and it's mainly performed in the grassroots by people who don't vote. So I find that, you know, you can still be taken to court and lyrics can be used against you as a character witness in the United Kingdom, in parts of the US, not all of them now, thank you, Louisiana changed the law, but, um, and California changed the law, and we're fighting that in lots of other places. So there's a lot of work that we need to do to explain that hip hop is the, to me, it's the perfect example of local economic development. It's, you know, this place should have a hip hop incubator in it because it's really cheap. It's got hip hop is really cheap, low barrier to access. We're born with the main instrument that we need. Like, so, you know, I think it's that it's, it's underdeveloped spaces, making them available, um, taking open mics seriously. They're really important in communities. Um, and talking about the difficult. Sorry, that you know, a lot of policy that still governs us is racist and we have to fight that. And that often manifests itself in a lack of understanding um, in government of how hip hop works, what it's for, and how incredibly valuable it can be to our communities. Okay. Go ahead, Betty Ann, quickly. Um, I'd like to build on um, what Shane is saying here and respond to your comments, Sam. I, one of the observations I've made on the evolution of our ecosystem, our music e ecosystem over the years is this um, emergence of the do-it-yourself musician. And um, I think it's the single biggest change between the, you know, the 60s and 70s when the story was all about who's the big touring rock band and how can we get them on our stage? And that was, the, that was it, that was the total. And then guys like Glenn sitting in the back there um, created these wonderful spaces for specific genres and Pop the Gator is the stuff of legend in our community. Um, but the biggest change I think is this notion that any kid in his basement can make his own song, his own recording, his own whatever, and can express him or herself um, and actually push it out there in a public way. I mean, that's always happened that kids make music in their basement, but the difference in the technology made it possible that everybody could be a published musician. And that has opened up so much potential for what I would call a music um, ecosystem in our communities um, so that we have we now have that rich grassroots dare I use that word uh, texture to build up 
the new, uh, the next generation and the scene that is so attractive to employers. So we keep hearing that, you know, that employers want to come here and, and live in a vibrant community. Well, how do we know it's a vibrant community? That's where the policy people come in and um, help us tell the story in a collective way. But that, just to say, like, that's true, but often the you can put your music up online yourself is an excuse for most people to not do anything to invest in it. So because it's a bit of a myth that music is available to everybody and accessible to everybody, there's no such thing as do it yourself. You still need an aggregator. You still have to go through a third party. So it's often the, it is a bit of a myth that we, the access of making music is accessible to everybody. But the access of marketing music and disseminating it as an economy is not. And often this concept that musicians can do it themselves, I found this, is an excuse for other people to do nothing to support them. And we have to understand that hip hop, like any other sector, needs infrastructure. And that infrastructure is not in everyone's basement. And often people who are making that kind of music can't even afford broadband to upload their music online. So we have to create proper infrastructure to understand that this is an economy. How many empty rooms are in this building that could be turned into writing rooms for DJs and rappers? Just throwing it out there, is there one? Maybe we could think about that. Um, maybe we could think about how this is a small business center. Maybe it's a small business center that includes musicians as businesses. Fantastic, I'm not, so, so that's great. Like these are the kinds of things and, and it's, because the music industry is so incredibly complicated and I find that we have to, we just have to build it back to that. It's, it is about spaces and places and often it is rappers and electronic music makers and metal bands as well. They tend to be marginalized too that are not properly represented in the mainly white man plays guitar, bass and drums and is on a stage while we all drink lager M mentality that still does govern a lot of the way we think about how music reaches us. Mm. And I just, uh, yeah. I just want to make a shout out to the libraries that are uh, and libraries, providing, of course, yeah, hugely important. Yeah, they're providing the spaces for people to make their own recordings. So. Hugely important. Okay, Amit, we're out of time, but do you want to throw in your two cents on the thing? Shane said it. Infrastructure is the big one, but this is building off what Sam said and what Ian said. I mean, you named it, right? Like, there are so many skill sets required to get music out there that people do not think about, and you cannot expect a musician to do it all on their own. Um, when Shane talks about infrastructure, it's not just spaces that we have to invest in, it's skill sets. That means people that can help musicians market, that, uh, that can play the instrument that they can't, you know, producers, tour managers managers for business like there's this whole industry that exists that people just forget about um, when, when they talk about music and all of that is required like most musicians that make it big are not always independent right and it's because you can't be expected to do all of that on your own um, so space is one of it one of the one of the necessities but the other is resources and and people who want to pursue that other side of music giving them the tools to learn the network to be able to to understand what the circle actually looks like outside of Kitchener-Waterloo-Cambridge, because uh, that's all it is. The Canadian music circle is so small once you get out there, um, and it's it's all networking, really. You know, this is an industry that grew what seven point eight percent last year globally. So, what other sector grew seven point eight percent? Like it grew at the same levels like PPE during COVID. So this is a good time to invest in music. 
the industry is doing really well in a general sense. It's an, it's an hourglass. It's not a pipeline, but it's still, you know, doing well. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a great opportunity to really consider music as a form of sustainable economic development. That was Shane Shapiro talking about his book, This Must Be the Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better. He was joined by Betty Ann Keller, Paul Kalbfleisch, and Amit Mehta. 